welcome. You are listening to OPOD's Occupational Health Podcast. This is a podcast series by the Occupational Health Clinics for Ontario Workers, where we discuss the challenges of current and emerging trends in occupational health and offer effective prevention strategies to empower workers. Hello, everyone. My name is Dwayne Fuchs. I'm a registered kinesiologist and the ergonomist at the Occupational Health Clinics for Ontario Workers Clinic here in Thunder Bay. And I'm Melissa Statham, Canadian Certified Professional Ergonomist at the OCAO Windsor Clinic. And today we're going to bring it back to basics. We've done quite a few episodes on different chores, potentially in ergonomics, sleep in ergonomics. But we're going to bring it back to what is ergonomics and what are musculoskeletal disorders today. So, Melissa, how would you describe or define the term ergonomics? So ergonomics is really about fitting the worker. Well, actually everything about the worker, right? You don't want to just put a worker in a work environment and not take into consideration the different variables, the anthropometrics and all of that. So you're really trying to fit the work to the worker. So in a sense, when you go into, you sit into a workstation, you want to make sure that all of the design features have taken into account who is going to be interacting with that workstation. So I've heard the term, it's it's basically applying principles to the workplace that can reduce injuries and health disorders and those things. Is that what ergonomics is attempting to achieve? Absolutely. It's about addressing those musculoskeletal disorder risk factors that could potentially lead to something like that. But there's different ways you can do ergonomics in a sense. You know, they can be a proactive or a reactive approach to ergonomics as well. And what really ends up happening, unfortunately, most of the time as ergonomists, we get called into these reactive situations. So what that means is that an injury has occurred. So when there are ergonomic hazards, the risk factors present in a job, they can lead to musculoskeletal disorders. So when someone becomes injured, whether, you know, typically it's a gradual onset injury uh, to exposure to these hazards, is when ergonomists often get called in to look and assess the job. So having that after the injury has occurred isn't ideal. It is good in a sense that they're aware that there is a problem and need to go through the controls and assess and pinpoint where the actual problem exist and see what you can do to rectify it. But ideally, as ergonomists, we like to be called into a proactive approach. And a proactive approach is when you're in that work design phase of any type of project. Now, that could be even designing a new office and you have to get new office equipment. You want to consult prior to getting the office equipment so that way you can ensure that you're fitting all of your workforce. You're not having to buy additional equipment. Everything is typically adjustable. It doesn't necessarily need to be adjustable, but it should be able for a worker to come in and make any slight changes to the workstation so that they are at a less risk to develop any type of musculoskeletal disorder. So ideally, that's the kind of the space we want to be in. We are both proactive and reactive, but the whole proactive approach is where we want to hone in, and that way we can eliminate any of these musculoskeletal disorders from happening in the first place. So basically, the proactive approach is preferred because it's preventative. You go in there prior to an injury happening so that hopefully the things that you implement will not ever lead to an injury. So that's why you prefer the proactive approach, right, Melissa? 
Absolutely. And, and it happens in all industries. You know, I talked about office, but a lot of times in automotive, there's people behind the scenes, ergonomists getting CAD from engineers. You know, you're looking at that CAD and you're designing or deciding different features of where things should be positioned ahead of time based on a person's anthropometrics. But it's definitely the space we want to be in because we would like to see work environments with less musculoskeletal disorders because unfortunately, musculoskeletal disorders are still one of the highest injuries within the WSIB. So you've used the word anthropometrics a couple of times. Tell everybody what that word actually means and what you mean by looking at the job based on the person's anthropometrics. Sure. I guess we use that term a lot and we don't even really think about necessarily that's not a common term for a lot of people. But anthropometrics is the size and shape of people. So you could have a workforce that is maybe more male dominated or female dominated. You have more tall workers or shorter workers. So you want to take all of that in consideration when you're looking at designing jobs and purchasing different types of equipment. When you take that into account, you're going to make sure that when the workers go into that work cell, workstation, that everything is at the proper heights, reaches, and distances so that the chances of musculoskeletal disorders occurring is a lot less. So in any type of design phase, ergonomists will always use this term anthropometrics, and that's what they mean. You're looking at the person, their height, their size, their reach, and there's a a lot of different data out there that's looked at populations. They'll often say in manufacturing a lot or in design, this whole 75th percentile female in designing for. And if you hear that term, what they're often um, saying is if you design for the 75th percentile female, that means the majority of males, probably 99% of males are going to be accommodated and the majority of females. Because often when you're designing, for the exception of office, office is one of those workstations because it is so static. And if there's enough adjustable features in it, you can design for potentially 100% of the population, as long as it has the right adjustable features and heights and ranges. But in manufacturing or different types of industries like that, they'll often pick that 75th percentile female population, or if they're male dominated, they might pick something that's more in the male spectrum of it. But they're trying to design for the most amount of people to be able to do that job and maintain neutral posture. Because anthropometrics, the whole idea is to have everybody maintain a neutral posture to reduce the likelihood of musculoskeletal disorders from occurring. Yeah, I've actually noticed in doing assessments in the past that individuals that have been injured have just naturally modified things on their own to try to decrease the onset of an additional injury or to try to deal with that injury. And I guess that goes back to what you brought up about reactive versus proactive. If we can take a look at those things beforehand, the individual would not necessarily get injured in the first place. But you've mentioned as several times uh, the term musculoskeletal disorders or MSD, and that's what we're attempting to uh, either decrease or eliminate. But what exactly does that term musculoskeletal disorder mean? 
So musculoskeletal disorders are any injury or disorder that occurs to the muscles, the tendons, joints, nerves, ligaments, and vertebral discs. And what happens is when these tissues become stressed on a regular basis, or you don't get enough recovery time between different tasks, what happens is they can eventually become damaged and lead to what we term as a musculoskeletal disorder. You'll often hear MSK, so musculoskeletal injuries is one that you hear often, cumulative trauma disorders, repetitive strain injuries was one that was fairly common uh, because we're going to talk about the risk factors for these types of injuries, but often repetition was seen as the main risk factor. So you had this whole idea of repetitive strain injuries being used. And there's occupational overuse syndrome, work-related musculoskeletal disorders. What to take away from all of those terms that I just rattled off is that they're all the same. They all mean the same thing. Right now, the most common term for these injuries are musculoskeletal disorders. So I guess there's a variety of different musculoskeletal disorders or disorders that are classified as MSDs. And there are things such as tendonitis, bursitis, muscle strains and tears, you know, specifically things that people might recognize things like rotator cuff issues where there's potentially tendonitis, um, which is an inflammation of the tendon at the rotator cuff, carpal tunnel syndrome, shoulder strains or bursitis, those types of things. Injuries at the elbow, lower back, neck, knee, all of those types of things, dependent upon the injury mechanism and the onset, are classified as musculoskeletal disorders. So when we're talking about musculoskeletal disorders, You can see through that range, I covered pretty much the whole entire body. Um, Every body part. (laughs) Exactly. So there's a lot of things that can be affected with musculoskeletal disorders that can lead to pain as well as further injury. So in our other podcast, we've mentioned some specific risk factors for the development of injuries. And what we mean by risk factors is if these things are present for any period of time, there's a greater chance of developing musculoskeletal disorders. So what are some of these risk factors? What would you classify as some of these general ergonomic risk factors? One of the biggest risk factors I find here is awkward posture. So we talk a lot about being in neutral posture in ergonomics. So when you're in neutral posture, that's when you are the strongest. Your joints are in a natural position. You're not outreached. You're not bent over. This whole idea, if you're seated in neutral posture, your legs are at 90 feet flat on the ground, elbows rested by your side, you're not reaching away. And that's when we are the strongest. So anytime that you work outside this posture, whether it's twisting, reaching, or bending, you're putting more strain on those joints or force, which is another risk factor. As soon as you get outside of neutral posture. So I always find that awkward posture and force, those two risk factors are probably the most common and they tend to pair with each other because as soon as you're out of neutral posture, whether you're holding anything, whether you have a load in your hand, you are still increasing the force at the joints because force becomes internal or external. Internal force is acting on our body 
all the time, external force happens as soon as we pick something up, as soon as, or as soon as we push or pull something. So force is that exertion required to create, to resist, or to maintain movement. So you see those two risk factors are pretty common in a lot of occupations, and they're very common in the uh, contribution to musculoskeletal disorders. The other one is static postures. So you think of these awkward postures and think of holding them without having a rest or without going back to neutral posture and then doing that action again. So if you had your arm held out straight or over your head for a sustained period of time, that would be a static posture. And the force on that joint again is high and they fatigue quite quickly. When you're in a static posture, your body needs blood flow and blood flow helps bring oxygen to the muscles. And the static posture, lactic acid is just building up. And so when you're not moving, you're not generating blood flow. So static postures are quite concerning when it comes to the development of musculoskeletal disorders. And I mentioned before the whole idea of repetitive strain injury is that being you used as a term um, prior to musculoskeletal disorders being more accepted. There used to be this focus on repetition being a huge ergonomic risk factor, and it is, but what it's more about is inadequate recovery time. We can do things for repetitively. So, so if you think of just even your computer workstation typing, typing can be quite repetitive. But if you're in neutral posture, it's rather low force. The thing is, is when you do things for too long and you don't get that recovery time um, in between. So like I mentioned before, this whole idea of lactic acid building up, you need time away to flush that out, bring oxygen to the muscles, then to be able to do that task again at the same amount of energy that you did it the first time. So repetition, it is a risk factor, but as long as you have adequate recovery, and it depends on the recovery um, that is needed, depends on the task that you're doing. Something that obviously is more physical if you're lifting something quite heavy and you have to do it so many times, your recovery time may need to be more than if you were lifting something lighter. And again, this is going to depend on the person because women and men, we have different strength capabilities and just different you know, physical fitness is going to come into play there as well. Another risk factor is vibration. Vibration comes in two forms. There is whole body vibration, and whole body vibration would be sitting on a piece of machinery. Often heavy equipment operators experience a lot of whole body vibration, and whole body vibration can contribute to a lot of different medical disorders besides musculoskeletal. Whole body vibration is often associated with a lot of back issues as well. And the other type of vibration is hand arm vibration. And this typically comes from using some type of a power tool that emits vibration and can lead to musculoskeletal disorders such as white finger, if you've heard of that before. Another risk factor is contact stress. So contact stress is when pressure is placed on a part of the body that's going to reduce blood flow. So it's an external pressure that's applied. And often you see this for sitting, it could be pressure that's placed at the back of the knees. If your seat pan is too big and it pushes against the back of your knees without any space there, that can lead to you feeling this numbness in your feet because blood flow is restricted to the lower extremities. 
The other one is using tools, tools that are going to press into your palm and the length isn't the appropriate um, length. So it clears your palm. It could dig into the palm and then again, reduce blood flow. So contact stress is something to keep in mind too with any tool use, often with office equipment, even resting your wrist on the edge of the desk can lead to reduce blood flow to your fingers. Another one is temperature. So whether working in hot or cold conditions, again, this is going to affect how you work. In hot conditions, you're going to be burning a lot more calories. You're going to fatigue a lot faster. So again, this might come to needing more breaks, more recovery time between tasks. In cold conditions, think of how your muscles and joints react to the cold, especially your hands. So again, that can contribute to musculoskeletal disorders. And then there's this whole idea of psychosocial. And this is a combination of non-physical aspects of your environment. So the social, the cultural, and the environmental influences that you have within the workplace and how they can affect your mind and behavior. So this can be correlated to stress. And if you think when you're stressed, think of how you work. If you work on a computer, sometimes when people have deadlines, they're feeling stressed, they end up adopting these awkward postures and kind of leaning in and pressing the keys harder. Or if you're working in an occupation using tools, you might be hammering harder. You're, it just changes, stress can change how you perform tasks and you can be forming tasks which you're not keeping those risk factors in mind. You're not working in neutral posture, exerting more force than you have to. So Melissa listed off eight different risk factors, but they work in combination with each other. And the ones that we tend as ergonomists to look at the most are the ones revolving around posture, around force, and around inadequate recovery time. Vibration and contact stress kind of fall within those. And so too are some of the things that affect us when working in extreme temperatures and also with uh, psychosocial aspects as well. So it's important to remember that we really need to look at those postures, either awkward postures, postures that deviate from neutral, and the length of time you hold those postures, right? Which combines with inadequate recovery. So if you're if you're holding certain postures for long periods of time, you're not getting that recovery time. And then as well as the force. So keep in mind that all of those things work in combination. So when we're looking at ergonomics and, and we're looking at trying to potentially decrease those risk factors, remember that as they interact, the risk increases. So any little bits that we can decrease uh, in terms of those risk factors will, over time, make a large difference in terms of eliminating or decreasing the risk of the onset of musculoskeletal disorders. So overall then, Melissa, how as an ergonomist and how do you roll what we're doing as ergonomists and through ergonomic intervention, how do we go through a process to prevent musculoskeletal disorders? It's important to have some type of hazard identification process in any type of workplace. So whether this is done in conjunction with a joint health and safety team, or you know if it's just the health and safety representative in conjunction with a worker, it's important to have some type of hazard identification process in place. Now, this is often in workplaces for other hazards 
hazards as well, but ergonomics should be included in this process. And what it is, is that you want to go through these jobs, whether, you know, it's been brought to your attention that there's employees that have concerns, or even if you're looking at data and you're you're seeing that there's some injuries that are reported. And so there's something going on. There's something that's correlating to this. So you want to look at a risk assessment, you know, assess the level of risk then at these jobs and what can be done to help them or to eliminate them. So then when it comes to that and when you've identified a hazard, you want to look at what controls can be implemented to eliminate or control it. And I keep on using this word eliminate because that's the most effective control that you can put in into place would be to eliminate whatever the hazard is. So there was something that someone was lifting that's quite heavy. Well, maybe putting a lift assist in so that that doesn't have to occur anymore would be a way to eliminate the job from having that manual material handling component to it. Now, as you go down, like think of an inverted triangle and at the top of this inverted triangle, the number one thing you can do is eliminate the hazard. The next thing is substitution. So can you replace that job with something else that's going to be less on the individual? So often in manual material handling, they'll look at if you have something you're having to lift and you have to carry, well, can we change that task now into something that can be pushed and pulled so then the person is and having to lift it. So there's ways of potentially substituting the task with something else in order to reduce that risk. You can't eliminate it, but you can substitute it with something else. And then there's different engineering controls that can be put in place, and that's looking at some type of redesign of the job. And then administrative policies and practices. So this is looking at different procedures that are put in place. This could be even training. You know, how are you to lift properly? Or even looking at the whole overall health and safety of different processes within the plant. Often, if you don't know, you don't know. So you need to make sure that you've had everybody educated because even within the act, you need to let everyone know of any of the hazards that are present in the job. And that way you can know what you're stepping into. And the least effective control is PPE. Now, PPE and ergonomics are in the prevention of musculoskeletal disorders. There's not a lot. There's ones that can help with contact stress. So if you think of, you know, knee pads, if you're, say, if you're a carpet installer, uh, wearing some type of uh, knee pad would be one to reduce contact stress. There are different types of gloves that can help dampen with vibration, but PPE in musculoskeletal disorders, it is a difficult one, but that one is the bottom of this inverted triangle. PPE is your last defense because really all PPE is doing is helping you. You're not really doing anything with the, with the hazard at all. It's still present. It's just a way to try to protect yourself from it, but you're not doing anything to change it. So what Melissa means by PPE, by the way, is personal protection equipment. So another add-on to that is it's something like in a loud environment, we can wear hearing protection, earplugs and, and earmuffs and those types of things as the last resort to try to protect ourselves from the loud environment. But if we move up to better levels of hazard control, maybe we could, you know, if a person's working a lot in that particular room, we could soundproof that room. Uh, insulated or, or do that so that some of the noise from the outside areas don't come through and or even look at the equipment that is being utilized 
and see if there's a way of actually changing that equipment so that it doesn't produce maybe as much noise. And that's just an example of personal protective equipment that's on the lower end of the hazard control versus eliminating or or substituting or changing the environment as best you can so that those risk factors aren't as prevalent. So give me an example then, Melissa, of how you would go through this process briefly in terms of how you would maybe try to implement hazard controls in an office setting. Okay, so your office setting, you're going to look at all the work, like the equipment in mind. I mean, if this person is someone that comes to us initially and has a concern about carpal tunnel or is having some discomfort, as an OCAO ergonomist, what we have them typically do is do some type of discomfort questionnaire. We kind of try to understand a what are all the tasks they do in one day so we can look at how they're using their workstation, how things are set up. Often pictures are great or if you can physically go into an office, it's perfect. So you can see exactly how everything is set up. So the first thing that we typically look at is the chair. You know, are you sitting in a chair properly? You're you're making sure that they're positioned there. And then you look at then the workstation. Are they having to reach up? Because often, sometimes with the wrist, if they're having to reach up, they're not only their upper extremity, their shoulder, but then they tend to rest their wrist on the hard surface as well, and then often aren't using the armrest on their chair. So you want to look at work height as well. It might be something that, you know, a control put in place is them increasing the height of their chair and using a footrest to get into that neutral posture that we talk about. Maybe they use their mouse a lot. So we're looking at the mouse and we're seeing that maybe they benefit from a mouse that's going to keep their hand in a more neutral posture. So your hand in neutral posture is kind of that handshake posture. And so often someone that uses a typical mouse is ambidextrous, right? It can be used by either hand and your hand is pronated on top of it. So sometimes using either a right or left-handed mouse, depending on which hand you are dominant, or a vertical mouse, you can get into a better posture and then, you know, ensuring they're doing the proper movement. Are they moving from their elbow? or they're not just making these wrist movements. We would look at your keyboard, make sure your keyboard, are they using the numerical pad on the side? Because if you're right-handed and you don't use that numerical pad, you can actually have a closer mouse placement and reduce that lateral reach. So you can look at how they interact with all of their equipment on their workstation. And then from there, sometimes it might be a matter of changing the location of equipment. You know, is everything close to them or are they having to reach for it? And then there might be additional equipment that they need, like I mentioned as well. Well, that's pretty good description on, on how you'd go through and do all those things. So like we mentioned earlier, it's really important to look at these things from a, a prevention point of view or from a proactive point of view so that we identify potential risks before anybody ends up injured because it's a lot more difficult and painful to deal with an injury once you already have it than it is to try to prevent it along the way. So anything else you'd like to add before we conclude our podcast for today, Melissa? No, I think that sums it up great, Dwayne. Thanks for listening in, everyone. For more information about this podcast, including show notes and companion materials, go to our website, www.ohcow.on.ca. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast channel to ensure you receive notification of our latest episodes. As well, check us out on Twitter and Facebook. 
Thank you for joining us.